0: Hi, this is Commander Mark Devine, founder of Seal Fit and author of The Way of the Seal and Unbeatable Mind. And you are fortunate enough to be listening to T.W. Smith at Kung Fu Podcast. Hoo ya! Welcome to Kung Fu Podcast, where we explore the culture, the adventure, and the impact of martial arts. I'm your host, T.W. Smith. We are in part two of Warrior Training to Sportsman's Training. In part one, we had gotten into the 1920s and the maybe the early 30s, where we were looking at this new breed of Chinese martial arts, urban associations. These associations had much different agendas than the urban and village type of versions of associations. It went from policing and protecting to politics and promoting. Many of these changes happened in a very concentrated window of time, which, remember, wasn't also all-encompassing either. There are those who preferred the traditional responsibilities, the traditional training and rituals. Adam Shu comes to mind. Ma Si Gong, Ying is another one that comes to mind, and many others who held on to the heartbeat of Kung Fu, which is usually, it is useful and applicable. However, as martial arts bent and twisted into modernity, there became the association for yielding. the integration of Chinese martial arts into the education system. This new breed of organizations I just mentioned earlier had their origins in private initiatives, much like the original secret society organizations. But now, the big government, the state, began to support martial arts in many different ways. With their own, support the state initiatives. As a result, we find efforts to integrate martial arts into the educational system. As we know, during these late 20s and early 30s, China wasn't the only place that this was beginning to happen. As early as January 1st, 1915, the former president, Yuan Shikai, in his guidelines for education, spoke in support of traditional Chinese martial arts. Later that year, just four years after the Qing dynasty has fallen, at a national educational conference, the members supported the establishment of traditional martial arts as an integral part of sports lessons at schools and universities. Once Chinese martial arts is in the school, they fall under the purview of different organizations and government, right? There are going to be new bureaucratic influences and requirements. Beyond the practical training of martial arts, you, the teacher must tell stories about the famous fighters in Chinese history. After three years or so, we're now approaching in 1919, the martial arts were once more supported in a fourth conference on education with the intention of creating a, quote, specific sport for the people of this country, end quote. We're now well into the heartbeats of putting much more scholarship and sportsmanship into the Chinese martial arts. This new breeding process will give new results, just like when dogs were bred for certain qualities. I'm sure that as the teacher, that you did not get to select which of the famous fighters will be presented in the state approach. We also know that by emphasizing these attributes, we take away from others, creating new vulnerabilities and weaknesses. In 1917, the Beijing University was founded and martial arts became a part of the teacher training. Every week, there were two hours of lessons in Tai Chi Tuan and Tui Shao, push hands. The adaptation of martial arts to the education system required new methods of rearranging the unorganized field of martial arts. Such an adaptation was done by Ma Liang. He took wrestling, fist and leg techniques, then sword and staff fighting, and combined them into a system he called New Chinese Martial Arts. By 1917, this new system was mandatory training for soldiers, policemen, and teachers at the Beijing University. Now martial artists got a whole new perspective as teachers, which they could use to teach martial arts at schools and universities. A famous example, Wan Sheng, 1903-1992, was born into a scholar's family. At age 25, He had a successful appearance at the first national contest of the Central Guashu Institute, which led to a government-sponsored post as director of the Guangdong Guangxi Martial Arts Academy. By 1934, he was responsible for all sports education at the University of Guangxi. Later, he was even given sports lessons at the Agricultural Institute of Yuzhen. There are many other examples, such as Wang Fengwu from 1903 to 1985, who taught literature and martial arts at the University of Shimen? But going through the VIP list won't get us any closer to the objective of this essay. The government support of martial arts within the education system now symbolizes the break of the young Republic of China from the more than 2,000-year-old traditional educational system. One characteristical change to the Chinese martial arts in this new education system was its militaristic style. It was added on to it, and that was influenced by countries such as Germany and Japan. The promotion of martial arts within the education system was a very useful and effective way to prepare the young generation for war. This new, but not so subliminal, approach could also be seen with the introduction of new sports such as judo and wrestling into the sports lessons. But after Germany's defeat during the First World War, the view changed. And from 1919 on, more and more people voted for a demilitarization of the sports lessons. This is an excellent moment to see how the Chinese martial arts, at least in these scholarship zones, were no longer true to their core. They are looking outward to see who's doing well and trying to copy them. There's nothing wrong with learning from others, for example, see how wrestling fits into improving your people, improving your skills, and the World War outcome shouldn't influence the value of grappling. Nevertheless, the tendency to treat martial arts as a national treasure was continued by the following government of the People's Republic of China. In fact, you may remember that several martial arts became popular through a series of VHS tapes called the National Treasure. I still have some of them. Some of these were not necessarily of the best martial artists in that style either. However, looking back, it makes sense that they were choreographed and narrated in the manner that they were when you pay attention to something like this sort of essay, because the state had its own agenda for producing those sorts of media. Consequently, martial arts became integrated into the education system and also became a part of the sports lessons held at the different educational institutions in China. In addition to the guidelines for sports lessons at primary and middle schools adopted in 1956, it was also decided in 1961 that in primary schools, martial arts should occupy six hours of the sports lessons of every term. Just as a side note, 1956 was also the same time period that the state approved Chinese Sports Committee to put together the physical education level of Tai Chi, best known as the Yang 24. The main focus was on the study of the basics of martial arts. Middle school students were required to practice eight hours of martial arts every term. The performance of routines and exercises practiced by two people together were the most important aspects of this training. The martial arts lessons were supported by new teaching materials containing the main ideas of old textbooks from the different sports institutes. After the disruption of the period known as the Cultural Revolution from 1966 through 1976, the government made some effort to extend the scope of the martial arts within the education system. Now that we've moved forward a couple of decades and because of its military tendencies, the new Chinese martial arts were not very successful, and after the May 4th movement, the system created by Ma Liang fell into oblivion. Which brings us into Chinese martial arts as an academic subject. After the standardization at the Beijing Institute of Sports in 1983, other departments added the study of martial arts into their curriculum, such as sports institutes in Shanghai, Wuhan, and Chengdu. At the same time, new degree programs were designed, which not only contained sports studies, but also the theory, history, and philosophy of martial arts. Simultaneously, there were new degrees for martial arts studies, such as get your bachelor's degree, or master's degree, or coaching and distance learner degrees. Professor Filipiak, who we've spoken about over these past couple of episodes, states that the integration of martial arts into the educational system also advanced the scientific approach in martial arts. This was important because, firstly, no one really knew how many schools of Chinese martial arts actually existed. Secondly, there were no standards for forms and exercises practiced in the traditional main schools, such as Shaolin Quan, Tai Chi Kwan, Xing Yi and Ba This is interesting for me because several Chinese styles historically did not have forms per se. They had numbers of techniques and training uh, focuses. The practitioner would learn to put together things in, for, for example, a short battle sequence. Then he would work on the execution and the tempo of that sequence, just like a fighter might. For example, let's just pose the question, which standard form did Mike Tyson use? He had a peekaboo style of boxing that his coach taught him, and he didn't really have a standard form, like a martial artist might think of as a kata or a taolu. Tyson would have situational sequences, get out of the ropes form, pin opponent on the ropes form, get into the zone form, and finish him form, right? Traditional Xing was much like Tyson Forms, in some of the other styles, the forms were merely just a catalog of actions, so the practitioner wouldn't forget a particular technique. Professor Philippiak also states that at the time, that there was little known about the real history of Chinese martial arts. Moreover, there were many myths and legends combined with religious notions, which made a scientific approach very difficult. For instance, There were rumors about fantastic abilities such as flying over roofs and walking on walls. Some claimed to have information about techniques used by occult masters that would cause the victim to die a long and painful death after several days. Others told stories about secret weapons. And the participants of the unsuccessful Boxer Uprising of 1900 to 1901 believed that certain exercises could make them bulletproof. Now, this topic of myth and legend removal is a good one. For many, these should be eliminated from the martial arts. Just focus on the mechanics and the objectives. But that doesn't even work in healthcare or military. When someone is really sick, the doctor will inevitably ask the family, is she a fighter? If we are focused on only the tangibles, what does her beliefs have anything to do with it? Or, Before a battle, the officers will assess the spirit of the man. What you believe matters, especially when it comes to intense situations or conflict. How you go about, for example, believing in yourself can vary a great deal from culture to culture or from time period to time period. But it's not important to me to eliminate those types of things. Just recognize them. If we are hell-bent on eliminating them because they are bad, per se, or delusional, per se, and that's how we define them on the outside, then let's eliminate them everywhere. All religion is a notion anyway, by definition, right? Because religion is based on faith, which means there is no scientific evidence of the gods or gods that you recognize. Just because we pray one or seven times a day doesn't make it so. And that religious notion doesn't make you bulletproof or give you passage to a so-called heaven. Or does it? Does going through the ritual of praying, gratitude before dinner, give you a sense of community, make you strive to be a better person? Why would believing that you, for example, might be bulletproof, even at the moment of the greatest risk that you're going to take, for example, facing your mortality, be a bad thing if it makes you do it with all the spirit necessary to reach your objective. To me, the religion, the legends, the myths of all the stories are meant to be part of the culture and part of the experience, a part of the time, and serve as a messenger, not just mechanics. Philippiak continues in saying that oral and secret transfer of knowledge about martial arts also makes it difficult to start a scientific discussion about martial arts. But, you know, let's not forget that in most traditional cases, it wasn't about, like, trying to be 007 secret. Most of the best fighters could not read or write anyway. What does that leave if you can't read or write, right? That's how I learned the long staff. A Chinese man occasionally barking Chinese at me, demonstrating technique, and then whacking me with a stick, Applicational reasons and slapping my hand as he said boo? Well, I quickly learned what boo meant. It meant no, and a little whelp helped uh say put concrete (laughs) evidence that it was wrong. He never wrote anything down for me, but it wasn't secret either. Plenty of people watched me sweating my ass off as I continued to get whack with that stick. Granted, there are these, if you want to call them, secret things that you might teach to appropriate students or more advanced things, and as well, during a dynamic time of governments hunting people down who were teaching martial arts, there was also a personal safety reason involved. Nothing like getting your head whacked off or teaching martial arts somewhere. As we go back to Philippiac's essay, some schools had traditional guides containing illustrated postures and techniques described with short commentaries. These materials were generally not made public, except for some military handbooks published during the Ming dynasty, which was 1368 through 1644. There were only a few resources providing information about the technical aspects and the historical development of Chinese martial arts. This situation changed at the beginning of the 20th century, when some people began to do research on martial arts. As a result, many new books were published. Most of the authors were martial arts masters who wrote textbooks to give beginners an introduction in different martial arts schools. Professor Filipiek also gives an example, The Study of Zhang, written by Sun Tong in 1917, which there is a full compilation of Sun Tong there at the website, and it helps you understand another myth. Just because someone like Sun Tong writes a book on martial arts doesn't mean that's what it is all about. And you just want to be aware of the context to which something is written. As well, there's The Art of Tai Chi Chuan written in 1925 by Chen Ming, who is a student of Sun Tong and also a scholar. Again, be aware of the context to which you write. And I think uh, Dr. Ben Jenkins once said is that it wasn't just about the martial art, it was like Taoist teaching 101 with Bacua 101. And I've pointed out that Tang Hao was quite literally the tip of the spear when it came to this more scientific approach. And he's also one of my favorite historical figures. He began to dissect and point out the myths, legends, just plain fakes in Chinese martial arts. Philippiak describes Tang Hao's work as remarkable. He used historical sources to analyze the people, schools, weapons, and techniques of martial arts. And it wasn't easy to get traction on this academic approach either. Remember that in the beginning, there was a lack of academic interest in the martial arts. Most of the Chinese martial arts experts were not scholars to begin with, and most scholars had very little interest in the martial arts. So in our timeline, we have pole vaulted from the 1920s to the 1980s, where Chinese historians and sports scientists took further steps to research martial arts. It could be that the success of martial arts movies made in Hong Kong resulted in a return of academic interest in martial arts in mainland China. In 1985, Xi Yuntai published the first history of Chinese martial arts, which starts with the Qin Dynasty up through the 1980s. Other studies followed, but now the academic interest turned to other aspects of martial arts. And this is where that creeping line of definition starts to move again. The academic interest began to also include problems concerning the cultural dimension of Chinese martial arts in relationship to questions about its philosophical and religious background. A good example of this is the study about the culture of martial arts published by Wanan in 1990. These different new approaches were based on the view that traditional Chinese martial arts were a phenomenon of high complexity that demands an interdisciplinary approach. So if I understand this correctly, philosophy and religious research is going to be included, but myths and legends are going to be eliminated. Which brings us... From art form to sport, Professor Filipiak summarizes, The process of how martial arts adapted to modernity becomes clear when we look at its practical and technical aspects. The adaptation process resulted from the clash of Western and Eastern cultures caused by the violent invasion of Western powers into China. Apart from the fact that it brought negative effects to the Chinese economy and political stability, Many Chinese people became fascinated by the new Western culture. There was a large interest in learning more about sports such as track and field, rowing, swimming, ball games, and other competitions. Compared to these kinds of sports, with their rules, celebrations, champions, martial arts seemed to be a relic of old imperial China, only there for its nostalgic value. Adding to the disadvantage of martial arts, public opinion changed after the First World War. The change is clearly reflected by the Chinese media. An analysis of articles in the Chinese daily newspaper Shenbao, which was founded in 1872, showed that public interests were shifting. Like most media, they were out to make money. They have sponsors that pay attention to circulation and what is happening out in the world and what sells a magazine or a newspaper. They focus primarily on what sells. If you follow the traction, here's what sells and here's what they were writing about. In the year 1919, there were 23 articles on martial arts, seven on Western sports. In nineteen twenty two, there were twenty two articles on on martial arts and then 34 on Western sports. That is a 500% increase. In 1926, there are only nine martial arts articles written and 73 written on Western sports. By 1927, one year later, there were zero articles written on Chinese martial arts in a Chinese newspaper. The public opinions and interest into the Chinese martial arts changed immensely from 1919 to 1927. Like I said, you went from 23 articles on martial arts in 1919 to zero by 1927. You went from seven articles written on Western sports in 1919 to 73 by 1926. These are public indicators that the militarism of the Chinese martial arts had lost its attraction. Besides the two big events, the 1923 National Martial Arts Meeting and the foundation of the Center for National Martial Arts in 1923, it was nearly an entire downward spin during the 1920s. No longer were martial arts supported to keep the young generation mentally and physically fit for war. In fact, there were many recommendations that military elements be removed from sports lessons. During the same time, martial arts lost government support dropping it far from public visibility the state is very good about making sure you pay attention to what they want you to pay attention to which brings us to the section of where traditional chinese martial arts is on life support fortunately there were a few passionate people who helped to keep the tradition alive with the intent of continuing the history of chinese martial arts but it was very clear that the old system needed to change. It was time to adapt martial arts to the needs of the modern society to find new forms for its practice and presentation. In the process, the original militaristic and combative aspects of martial arts began to be overshadowed by the trend toward development into a sport. This trend was evident simply in terminology. Terms such as physical education and sport were introduced into the Chinese language. Consider that. The phrases sport and physical education did not even enter the Chinese language until the nineteen twenties. The European term physical education was born in 1748. A few years later, gems offering to cultivate physical health spread throughout Europe, particularly in Germany. Originally, back in China, many martial arts classes were referred to as calisthenic classes, such as Jinwu Tikao, However, in 1923, as we were just talking about with the uh, newspaper there, as public opinion was changing, they experienced a policy change. Calisthenics class now became sports class. Your martial arts teacher, Sifu, became coach. This really symbolizes the powerful influence of westernization on Chinese exercise culture and terminology. Another step in this direction was undertaken by Yang Cheng Fu, who lived from 1883 to 1936. He was a teacher of the third generation of the Yang Tai Chi Chuan. He developed a new version of the Yang Tai Chi Chuan called the Big Form, which was adapted as an existing demand for health exercise. So within, Yang Cheng Fu changed the original high jumps, stamp kicks, and other difficult movements in order to make it more of a physical education set. Which leads us to the section that I call face-off. You probably remember there was a movie with John Travolta and Nicolas Cage where one takes one face-off and puts it on a different body. Well, in this case, they're taking the face of imperialistic physical education and trying to put it on traditional Chinese martial arts. Even in the movie, the characters were having a very difficult time in the context of being who they were in the new environment with this face, because they were expected to be one thing, but they were in a whole different set of situations. Filipiak writes that although the adaptation process of martial arts to modernity was successful, we have to recognize that this struggle for survival also caused a deep break with the traditional past of martial arts. As a result, what you'll find are new trends that change the face of martial arts, such as the reduction in complexity, accompanying its transformation into sport. This is the time period that it became necessary to create standards for the training and examination of Chinese martial arts lessons, limiting the number of forms and reducing the number of technical elements. In this context, the examinations of the National Center for Martial Arts only contained certain forms and weapons of the popular schools of martial arts. It was not allowed to practice with rare weapons or to use rare forms. If we had to defend the standardization of Chinese martial arts, we can say that former teachers of martial arts rarely had any teaching or educational qualifications, and what the students learned often depended solely on the personal interest of the teacher. Now, there was a standardization of teaching as well as standardization of textbooks, which helped to quickly pauperize the standard martial arts. Makes me very grateful that Tibetan Lama or Hop guard did not fall into the standard textbook. Now, for the prosecution, the standardization also had a lot of negative results. As just stated, there was now a limitation and reduction of the original content and requirements of traditional martial arts. Perhaps it was necessary to create more modern sport forms that would keep martial arts alive, but you must also consider the fact that previously it was impossible to objectively compare the different routines of traditional Chinese martial artists. There were so many stylistic movements, techniques, and practice speeds that it allowed for the cultural differences. In the end of it all, you were tested on your ability to walk out there and to protect yourself. Now, at least it was possible to compare some folks in a competition judged by standardized rules, for example, in their forms. In free fights, it was also important to set up rules to protect the fighters. Therefore, the sports practice in martial arts required a set of rules of binding character. The first step to set up these rules for martial arts competitions go back to the end of the Republic of China, which was established in 1912. But the free fighting championship held by the National Center for Martial Arts in Hangzhou in 1929 still followed the traditional pattern. The two opponents had to fight on a high platform. There were no limitations, such as age or weight. Scores were given if one opponent was able to knock down or throw the other one off of that platform. If a fighter could win two of three rounds, he was the winner of the match. In 1948, all that gets scrapped and the rules get an overhaul. The Committee for the 7th National Sports Competition created a more regulated way of competing as the following outline of martial arts regulation will demonstrate. Here are some of the highlights of the 1948 announcement to changing the rules. So instead of throwing people off of a tall platform, we were now going to have You know, scores based on good or bad performances in boxing or weapon competition. Uh, There will be one routine allowed for each performance. Only one performance of weapons, whether it was single or partner performance, per competitor was permitted. The use of weapons is limited to just four categories. You could pick a saber, a sword, a spear, or a staff. We have time allotments, which is uh, five minutes for all competitors. Scoring regulations were going to be based on three criteria, posture, movements, and the sequence of action, with a perfect score of 100 points in each criteria. The average of the three was going to be your final score. One of the other things that's going to happen through this process of changing from traditional Chinese martial arts and training into this more sports realm is now we actually start to see this development between the difference between amateurs and pros. Once we get into standardizations and judging, organizations begin to set a uniform set of rules to identify amateur and professional artists. It continues even to this present day. The presentation of forms began to dominate the competitive landscape, and the rules to compare the competitors became more important. The body of rules and regulations designed in 1958 regulated the design and number of elements for different styles, and also set time limitations and regulated other aspects of the sport. To me, this is where it absolutely divides into the abyss. Now you can be a professional martial artist strictly due to your ability to perform a set of form within a set of rules inside of your time and pleasing the judges. Thinking of all the variables at play, such as politics, there would be no combative presence, You are now considered a pro because you have a nicer uniform than I do, and you can do a form better than I do. In fact, Philippiak states, because of the narrow scope of the rules and regulations, the character of the presentation became more important than the realistic applications of the movements. The competitors in these newly designed martial arts exhibitions began to perfect their presentations following the well-known Olympic motto of higher faster, and stronger. The new presentations contained more and more artistic elements characterized by rapid movements, high jumps, and expressive gestures, creating a new form of aesthetic movement. At the same time, the combative aspects became less important. In addition, there were also changes in weapons, the weapons now used in martial arts presentations were only props, like that flimsy-ass tin-foil sword, which was very different from a real weapon constructed for battle. Since 1960, martial arts sports groups were founded in all provinces, cities, and self-governing areas. As well, martial arts became part of the sports curriculum at the Chinese primary, middle, and high schools. This gave birth to a network of federations, schools, and institutes, which were created and provided the amateurs and professionals with the necessary structure to practice martial arts under modern sports regulations, which begins to speak to the globalization of sporting Chinese martial arts. As it moves forward into the 60s, athletes from all over the world became fascinated by the new modern martial arts and took part in these competitions. The 2008 Olympic Games of Beijing, those presentations showed that the international community had jumped on board. So now we're at the place of looking at the development of the Chinese martial arts from a feudal relic into a national treasure. And this adaptation process was actively supported and advocated by the government. Certain trends such as the integration of martial arts into the educational system would have been impossible without government assistance. Financial aid and other government support systems also helped martial arts to establish its reputation in modern times. This government support from the time of the Republic of China onward was unique in the history of Chinese martial arts. In Imperial China, martial arts were practiced by the military and were also part of the military examination system. The increasing use of firearms changed martial arts military importance. Remember that under the Qing dynasty, 1644 through 1911, martial arts were disapproved of for security reasons. On several occasions, the imperial government would strictly forbid the people from practicing Chinese martial arts. And that was because those were real, traditional Chinese martial arts. They posed a threat, or could pose a threat, as compared to Peter Panning across the stage with tinfoil. No threat there. Practice all you want. Under the Republic of China, now that martial arts was turned into physical education and performance routines, the government's attitude toward martial arts changed. Now martial arts became accepted as a national treasure. The founding of the Center for National Martial Arts in 1928 also shows and demonstrates that the government appreciated the cultural value of martial arts and promoted it through state support. The term martial arts, wushu, changed to national martial arts, guaoshu. It is argued that this was to lay emphasis on the importance of martial arts as a national treasure and to commit the government to this project. Unlike the private martial arts organizations, the Center for National Martial Arts was subordinate to the control of the Ministry for Science and Education. The Chinese government supported the center to an amount of 4,000 yuan per month. The center aimed to generate a new culture of martial arts, to enhance national health, rearrange teaching materials, train a teaching staff, standardize the teaching, improve the research, publish tasks and demands, satisfy the historical mission to learn from defeat, strengthen the fatherland, and learn to wage wars in order to defend oneself. The center also looked at the elimination of the grouping of the martial arts, which was two primary groups, the Shaolin and the Wudong. In order to achieve all of these goals, it was decided that a network of different branches of the Center for National Arts in Nanjing should be established. This massive network in 24 provinces and more than 300 branches recruited government-approved instructors such as Wang Xingping, Sun Tong, Li Jinlin, and Zhu Gaoshen, As Piak explains, it was more important that you were associated with the right groups as compared to being an excellent traditional Chinese martial artist. In other episodes of Kung Fu Podcast, we have discussed why other well-known traditional martial artists, truly masters such as Wang Jai were passed over for these teaching posts because, as alluded to here, these were actual combatants and not really conformists. The primary purpose of the training center was to combine cultural standards, WIN, with military abilities in martial arts, the WU. It was intended to educate the students according to modern needs. Aside from teaching martial arts, there were also additional lessons on topics such as literature, history, geography, and biology, passing the National Martial Arts Examination was the goal of their education. And there were only two historical national examinations, the first October the 15th, 1928, and the second on February 2nd, 1933. The pre-examination for the first national exam tested the practical abilities of the students, according to the profile the examination contained the practice of saber, spear, sword, and stick, and fighting without weapons. It also had an exam on wrestling, free fighting, and the practice of short and long weapons. In addition, there was an oral exam on the three principles of the people, as designed by Sun yat senator If you'd like to learn a lot about that time period, check out Kung Fu Podcast 114, 115, and 116. It goes into a lot of detail about that particular area and those types of exams. The next step into taking the Chinese martial arts into a national treasure was the creation of the Chinese National Martial Arts Team, which became a symbol of cultural identity. In 1936, the national team had performances in Singapore, Malaysia, and other countries in the East and Southeast Asia. To spread the popularization, the martial art exhibits were also organized in the West. I'd like to point out that this time period parallels with the international spread of Judo. Shinzo Tagaki took Judo to India, Nepal, and Afghanistan in 1929. The Italian Judo Federation was founded in 1924. In 1934, the European Judo Union was formed. New, modernized Asian martial arts was being spread with government support throughout the world. Back in Germany 1936 at the Olympic Games, there was a Chinese martial arts exhibit. The same year, another exhibit in Frankfurt in the presence of more than 1,000 spectators, which was also successful. In the beginning, martial arts were supported within the scope of the general sports promotion. Politicians such as Mao Zedong and Zhao Enlai tried to revise the worldwide opinion of the, air quote, sick man of Asia as quickly as possible. Large sports events such as the Sport Games of the Nationalities, organized by the Sports Ministry in Tianjin in 1953, also included martial arts exhibitions. In 1954, the National Martial Arts Team was established, and in 1956, the first large competition in Chinese martial arts took place with participants from 12 provinces. The government not only provided financial aid and other forms of assistance, but also had an influence on the essential content of the traditional Chinese martial arts. With recent and present-day events after the COVID-19 lockdown, we can get a real perspective of what government officials will deem necessary and essential and what they don't. To say some of it is very ass-backwards is an understatement. Which brings us to the conclusion of the Warriors to the Sportsman. The adaptation of Chinese martial arts to modernity was a process of high complexity. It was influenced by the modern Western physical culture, which was introduced to China at the end of the 19th century. The spread of physical exercises was associated with the Western concept of physical education. It supported public interest in sporting activities. Traditional Chinese martial arts were originally used for self-protection in military activities. They were not a kind of sport in the original sense, even though they might include elements of sport or physical culture. In light of the fact that their former purposes was lost in the relevance of modern times, it may seem reasonable to emphasize the sporting aspects in order to popularize the martial arts. This process ran on several different levels, in which the old organizational structures were reshaped, martial arts became a sports form, the desire for academic research was also created, and Chinese martial arts were developed into a national treasure. You know, it reminds me that I had a fantastic professor in graduate school shine a light on a topic that I never knew existed. Biases of organizations. Before we were allowed to accept any research of any kind, we were required to research who did it and when they did it. Most organizations that create studies, especially if they have monies coming in from, let's say, a government source or another uh, very important entity, their sample pools, statistical analysis process, are all aligned to find a result that will support the message they want to send. So, for example you're not going to find any research that you really don't need milk from the Dairy Association, even though many other countries have less osteoporosis and they don't drink milk. As a consequence of this new research, new forms of Chinese martial arts were created that we can no longer characterize as traditional martial arts, and they have no part of any century-old traditions. The new forms included the health-oriented and modified Yang Tai Chi Chuan, as well as new routines created for modern, high-performance athletes. In addition, the trend to reduce martial arts training to a few famous styles brought about the creation of a constrictive set of rules. The process of self-assertion in Chinese martial arts was initiated by private activists who attempted to keep the tradition alive and a time of cultural erosion caused by the confrontation with Western culture. By the end of the 20th century, new motives for government involvement in the martial arts emerged. Martial arts had gained a worldwide following, and yet at the same time, there had also begun a noticeable trend toward a seemingly Americanized form of globalization. Both of these facts were excellent reasons for the Chinese government to promote the spread of martial arts in addition to Chinese language and culture in the form of Confucian Institutes. Originally, as I was posing this process from warrior training to sportsman training, I gave us the example. All dogs came from wolves. In some breeds, you can still see the wolf. and In some, you barely can. Find your training. Find what you're looking for. Make sure you have your objectives and keep moving forward. But always compare it to where you want to go and what you're doing. Take care. I really look forward to talking with you again soon. This is T.W. Smith. Practice hard today.